The Old Testament readings from Jeremiah chapter 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistles from 1 Thessalonians 3. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 19th chapter. Glory to You, O Lord. When Jesus had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When He had drawn near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the Gospel of the Lord. It's to you, O Christ. So the Gospel reading is uh, the story about Jesus. It's the story from Luke about Jesus' triumphal entry. And uh, I'm going to read through it and then make some comments. And then uh, when we get to the end, we'll talk specifically about the last uh, two or three verses. When Jesus had said these things... Uh, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. I'll tell you in a few minutes what it is that Jesus uh, just said uh, that uh, Luke's referencing here. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, sent, went away and found it just as he had said to them, as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. So Jesus, he either is prescient, he either knows in advance that this is going to happen uh, with the owners of the colt, or he's already made arrangements with them uh, uh, to bring him the colt uh, for what he needs. At any rate, he wants a colt. And uh, the word colt here, it could could mean a young donkey or a young horse. Uh, 
And what Jesus is about to do is to do a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy. And the prophecy comes from Zechariah chapter 9. So he's about to enter Jerusalem. He knows he's going into Jerusalem uh, for the last time. He's going there to claim his kingdom. And he's, he wants to do it on this cult because Zechariah 9 says this. Let me read it to you. Rejoice. So this is written uh, four to five hundred years before Jesus was born. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. So Zechariah is writing at a time when they don't have a king. They're exiles and slaves in a foreign land. And he's looking forward to this time when the king comes back, when Israel has a king again, when God's in charge once again, and there's a king on the throne of Israel. And he says, in in this vision he's having, he's saying, look, Israel, your king is coming back to you. He's coming to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, so there's not going to be any more war. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this notion uh, embedded within the Old Testament that when the true king shows up, when God acts to finally rule and reign over all things and sends his king to do so, that God will rule and reign over the whole world, not just Israel, but over the whole world. All right. And for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. A cistern, a waterless pit, that's a common uh, prison in the ancient world, a common temporary prison. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow, and etc. So uh, when the king comes, he's going to come, Zechariah 9 says, uh, riding on a colt, on a young horse or a young donkey. And so Jesus is going to do this. Is what he's going to do. He's going to do some self-fulfilling prophecy. His disciples all get it. Because as he's coming down the Mount of Olives and about to enter the city of Jerusalem, they start chanting uh, this uh, phrase, which is in uh, uh, verse uh, 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're claiming that Jesus is the king because Jesus himself is claiming that he's the king by riding on this uh, donkey. Now, uh, some people don't like this. Verse uh, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You need to stop them. They're saying that you're the Messiah. Like, tell them not to do this. And then Jesus says, "Uh, it's kind of past that now. If I told them to stop, even the stones would cry out that I'm the Messiah. And that's our story. That's our story for the day. Why is it, do you think, that that the Pharisees... Uh, wanted them to stop chanting that Jesus was the king. Uh, why is it that people don't like this notion that Jesus is the king? A, a couple, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, uh, a couple of big ones that come to mind like within the story of Jesus. First is that uh, uh, Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. Jesus uh, doesn't match up to what we expect him to be or to do. And so it's easy to kind of shunt him aside, or it's easy to like t- take the uh, uh, you know take the husk of him, take the veneer of him, and leave out the good stuff. You know, I mean, we're Christians, right? We have to like be Jesus people, so we'll take Jesus. But sometimes Jesus isn't what we expect him to be, and it's easy to sort of like brush that sort of thing under the rug. And I think that's what the Pharisees are doing. Do you guys know this? The Pharisees. It looks like the Pharisees think of Jesus as one of themselves. 
I know it's real common to say, like the Pharisees hated Jesus because he was too righteous and holy and good, and they were evil and dark-hearted, and so they didn't like good people. That's actually not the way the story looks. The Pharisees, from very early on, think of Jesus as one of them. They call him rabbi. I mean, this is something. This is not something that they would call somebody who they considered to be evil. They are frequently shocked that he's not doing Pharisee-type stuff. Hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands like we do? You know, before they eat. This is not something that everybody did. Washing, you should wash your hands before you eat as a matter of hygiene. But they wash their hands before they eat as a religious ritual, as a purification ceremony. Not every Jew did that, wash their hands and feet before they ate. But the Pharisees did because the Pharisees were determined to maintain a temple sort of level of holiness. A priest, even though they weren't priests, a priest level of holiness. And assuming that Jesus was on board with them, because he was a fellow Pharisee, they just assumed, they're kind of puzzled why his disciples don't do the same thing. Why is it that your disciples pick grain on the Sabbath? This is something that probably a lot of Jews did. Now the Pharisees had set themselves apart as we are going to be the keepers of the law. They probably looked down on people who picked grain on the Sabbath. But we don't have any indication that the Pharisees went around slapping corn cobs out of people's hands. They just probably were content with, oh, hoi polloi, the people of the land, the, the, uh, the, 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 the low life, the, uh, the, the uninitiated. That's the kind of thing that they, we don't. We would never think of walking by a field and picking some grain on the Sabbath. That would be farming, and we would never do that. Jesus, why do your disciples do that? Assuming that Jesus is a Pharisee. Jesus never quite plays along, though. He never fits in with them. Constantly befuddling their attempts to get him to fit in. Now, he'll have discussions with them sometimes. You want to get around and discuss, what's the greatest law? Jesus will do He'll sit with the Pharisees and do that. But every once in a while, Jesus will break out with one of these, truly, truly, I say to you, which is kind of off limits for the Pharisees. You're not supposed to, you don't really have any authority. You have the authority of your studying. You can say, Rabbi so-and-so, from three generations ago said this. I'm going to bring that up. But you're not really allowed to say, okay, I know that Rabbi so-and-so said this, and I know that Rabbi so-and-so disagreed, but I'm telling you, here's the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Jesus won't play ball with them. He doesn't quite meet their expectations. Jesus doesn't quite always meet our expectations or our culture's expectations. It's a common thing. So I teach, you know, I teach at Lewis and Clark and I hear students say these th- sort of things about Jesus a lot. And this is not really, this is not really groundbreaking. You've heard this sort of thing too. Like I think Jesus was a really, he comes across as a really, really great guy. Like he says a lot of great things. Like this, you know, uh, I don't know about like worshiping him, this notion that he died and, and rose from the dead, this notion that he's somehow God's son. I don't know about that. I think he was a really, really wonderful man who had latched on to the truth that love is the answer. And this is the sort of thing he taught people. I was reading uh, um, an interview from, of course, the 1970s with uh, John Lennon recently, John Lennon recently, saying really something sort of similar. Like this was near, within a couple of years of the end of his life and saying, I started rereading the parables of Jesus and I'm just struck by the wisdom of this guy and how loving he is. This is kind of the expectation that we have of Jesus you know that he is, he's a wise teacher. If you know anything about the Jesus Seminar, do you guys know anything about the Jesus Seminar? They'll be on the, they'll be on the news a lot come Easter time. Uh, 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 Bishop Spong and John Dominic, Dominic Crossan and these guys 
who are asked about Jesus, and they're going to say this similar sort of thing. He was a cynical teacher. He was a holy man who walked around teaching love and uh, brotherhood, and uh, he was kind to people. He's radically generous with his time and with his spirit. Uh, these sorts of things. This is the Jesus. This is the Jesus we like. Why is that? Why is that the Jesus that our culture likes? Why is that the Jesus that you don't mind telling your coworkers and your friends that you believe in? But the dead Jesus, that's something a little bit tougher to do. The Jesus who rose from the dead, that's a little bit weird to talk about that. The loving Jesus, that's okay. Here's why. Because that Jesus, you, you know, the, 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 the wondering teacher Jesus, looks like me and you. He looks like somebody who would be a good guy in our culture. There's this great quote by Albert Schweitzer. Remember Albert Schweitzer, the, the uh, missionary to Africa and the famous pianist? And one, an unbelievably wonderful New Testament scholar, too, uh, by the way. There's this wonderful quote. And he, one of the things that Albert Schweitzer did in this famous book that he wrote called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, which is written in the early part of the 20th century, was he had studied, Albert Schweitzer had studied all of the great scholar, New Testament scholars from Europe and North America in the 1800s. And they were all saying this sort of like Jesus seminar stuff. But a wonderful guy. So wonderful and so loving that people had to kill him. So wonderful and so loving that even after he died, his followers latched onto him and said, we miss that wonderful, loving teacher. Let's, what would it be like if he was really still here? Let's tell everybody that he rose from the dead as a sort of metaphor for his spirit is still with us. Albert Schweitzer read all those stories and he said this. This is a quote. The Christ that, and he mentions one of them specifically, the Christ that this scholar sees looking back through 19 centuries of Christian darkness. So he's, he's imagining this one particular scholar looking back through Christian history and looking for Christ is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. So do you see what he's saying? He's looking for Jesus. We want to know Jesus, and we're looking down the well of history, and what we're seeing is our own reflection, our own values, and we say, that's it. That's Jesus. Our expectations of a good guy are, I don't have to tell you, you know what a good guy is. Nice. Friendly. You know, give you a little bump on the shoulder every once in a while. Help you out when, th- when, when things are down. Give you a phone call when you're kind of bummed out. That's the Jesus we like because that's the Jesus that we wish that we were. Jesus, however, I mean the real Jesus, like refuses to meet these expectations. He refuses to look like what we demand him to look like. Why do you wash your hands? Why do you not wash your hands before you eat? Because he doesn't have to. He doesn't want to. I desperately want him to wash his hands before he eats. I desperately want him to be the good sport who kind of backs off of this crazy, I'm in charge of the world stuff. And he refuses to do it. We don't like this Jesus who doesn't meet our expectations. One of the reasons why we don't like the the real Jesus is because, and I think this actually is getting close to the heart of the matter, is because that real Jesus insists that he's in charge of us. That he's in charge of everything. And a good sport wouldn't do that. A good guy would call me if I was down. A good guy would say, hey, how about them Cardinals? 
You know, hey, can I take you out to lunch sometime? Let's get some coffee. That's what the good sport would do. But Jesus won't be the good sport. Jesus insists that I bow my knees in front of him and obey him. We like Jesus as long as he looks like us, right? This is, I mean, this is what I, the point I just made. We like the Jesus who's a Republican. Or we like the Jesus who's a Democrat. We, we like the Jesus who votes like we do. We like the Jesus who's okay with free love. This is actually, I mean, so uh, um, I, I get this a lot from people about human sexuality. Like, I just can't believe that Jesus wouldn't want me to be happy. Like, I believe in Jesus, really, but when the Bible says all that stuff about the rules that God has for our sex lives, I just can't go there. You see what we're doing? Like, I like Jesus. I like Jesus to say, how you doing? Who you dating? Oh, really? That's cool. She's pretty good looking. But when Jesus comes and says, no, this is actually how I want you to live your life. This is how I want you to use your sexuality. That's where I step off the train. I don't want the Jesus who's the king. I want the Jesus, I'm I'm like the Pharisees, I want the Jesus who looks like me. But Jesus refuses to do that. Jesus refuses to meet my expectations. Jesus refuses to cater to my own eccentricities. Jesus refuses to give in to my sins and rubber stamp my desires. Jesus funnily, funnily, Jesus weirdly, I should say weirdly instead of, I don't think funnily is a word. Jesus weirdly insists on being God. He doesn't want to be my buddy. He doesn't want to be my teacher. Take some notes. Bell rings. I shut the book and I head out of class. Jesus wants to be the Lord of my life. Jesus wants to be in charge of me. And that's why we have to keep going back to the Bible over and over again. Because the temptation that you and I are always going to have is to create God in our own image. The temptation is always going to be, all right, I want to know Jesus. Where can I find Jesus? I think the best place I can find Jesus is in my bathroom mirror. That person looks like Jesus. But, but here's, the, here's the deal. Please, uh, I'm not talking about you right now. I'm talking about myself. I know enough about myself at this point in my life, and it wasn't any fun getting here to this point, by the way, to know that I am screwed up enough that a Jesus that looks like me is a pretty horrible Jesus. A Jesus who values what I value is a pretty bad Jesus. And as much as I want him to, that sort of Jesus would make a lousy God. Because what I don't need, I I, I realize this now. Uh, 43 years in, I realize this now. What I don't need is a pat on the back. What I don't need is, you're okay. Because I know, when everything else is quiet, and I'm alone with myself, that I'm an, an extremely screwed up person. What I need is a God. What I need is somebody to say, it doesn't matter to me whether you like what I say or not. You need to obey me. What I need is to be forced to my knees. What I need is to be forced to my knees so that my life will be good instead of the way that I've designed it and the way that I live it out. What I need is for God himself to become human and to be God and to be human at the same time and shed his blood Not so that he can meet my expectations. Not so that he can make me feel okay about myself. But so that he can fix me. Amen.